This podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have Anata and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for this week's episode is someone I came across through previous Just Checking In podcasts, Lucy and Verity Nevitt. Sophie Marsh is an associate lecturer in criminology and law. She did a Bachelor of Arts with Honours in Criminology and Law at the University of the West of England and graduated with first class honours in the summer of 2019. She's currently doing her PhD on the attrition of rape and the effects of rape myth acceptance and is also the founder of Soph Talks. It's a platform which discusses issues including criminal justice, human rights, mental health and sustainability. Sophie has written for this blog herself and has also given other authors a voice to share their experiences. In this episode we discuss Sophie's academic journey, the imposter syndrome she had transitioning from student to lecturer, work-life balance and the impact that COVID-19 has had on her career. At the time Sophie was only teaching for a few months before the pandemic hit. We also discussed Soph Talks and the positive impact it's had on her authors and her own mental health in educating her about issues she hadn't previously known about. Before we conclude with the discussion about sexual violence against women, the awareness campaigns currently out there and why the ones targeting men need to be a little bit better than they currently are. For Sophie's mental health, we discussed her experience of anxiety and panic attacks she has lived with in her teenage and adult years, why doing CBT wasn't massively helpful for her and the grief she experienced losing her uncle a couple of years ago. So this is how my conversation with Sophie Marsh went. Sophie Marsh, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. I think you are the second Bristolian I've had on here. So thank you very much for coming on and letting me check in with you. How are you getting on? Yeah, good, thank you. How are you, Freddie? Thank you so much for having me. That's all right, right, my pleasure. So at time of recording, I'm in the last throes of COVID isolation. So I'm very much hoping that... In the next couple of days, I am free. So yeah, been a bit of a struggle living on my own during second COVID infection, but hopefully the back end of it now, so we're all good. Doing your blog, Soph Talks, Sophie, and the way you give a voice to others means we'll probably have quite a good, nice few commonalities on this episode as well. So without further ado, let's start the show. Let's start the pod by talking about your academic journey, Sophie, and this journey into academia. So how did it begin and why did you decide that an undergraduate degree in criminology and law wasn't enough to satisfy your intellectual itch? I really, really enjoyed my undergraduate. I was very lucky, enjoyed all the modules I took, made great relationships with the lecturers and just really immersed myself in the research and the topics that we were taught. And as you said, I kind of decided that wasn't enough for me. I did my dissertation on the extent to which rape myths exist and are then potentially portrayed in the courtroom and how that kind of impacts conviction rates of rape and other sexual offences. And when you're writing your dissertation, you think, how am I going to write 12,000 words? (laughs) But those 12,000 words disappear quite quickly. So I had so many questions left and so many things 
I wanted to write about that I just didn't really have the scope for within an undergrad dissertation. So when it came to kind of graduating and everyone's trying to figure out their career path and, and what it is potentially that you might want to do after uni. And I think in this time, you know, you've become so familiar with your degree and the place that you're living in and it becomes your comfort zone almost, I suppose. So it's quite hard for people to think about moving forward. But one of my lecturers, Matthew Hall, who's a good friend of mine now, he suggested that I do a PhD. And I remember thinking at the time, surely I'm not the sort of candidate for a PhD. I didn't come from a sort of wealthy background, I didn't go to any kind of prestigious schools or anything like that, which is what I thought the PhD culture would be like. And did some research around it and spoke to a number of colleagues and realised that actually I did have the potential to do a PhD because I'd performed really well in my undergraduate and that there was the kind of opportunity for me to skip the master's as well. That was something that I looked into doing, but there wasn't really anywhere commutable from Bristol that had a course that I was massively interested in. So start of the PhD journey, um, it was taking on the elements from my dissertation, but this time I'm looking at the prevalence of rape myths and victim blaming attitudes within society and then police investigations as opposed to the courtroom this time. So yeah, I've just completed my second year going into my sort of third year of research now and it's shaping up quite nicely. It's been a bit of a strange experience because I did start it two months before the pandemic hit but all in all really enjoying it and can't wait to see where it takes me. Excellent. We'll talk about COVID in a second but doing the transition from student to lecturer and doing it in the same university you studied was I imagine a bit of a strange experience because you knew a lot of the staff already. It was probably a comforting experience in many ways too. But you did start experiencing some imposter syndrome. So how did that affect your mental health when it began? And, and has it subsided at all? I was very fortunate that quite soon after I started my PhD, I was offered a role as an associate lecturer. I'd kind of anticipated that being quite a lot further down the line. So it was a great opportunity for me. And as you say, I stayed at the same university that I had been a student at. I was working now with colleagues that were my previous lecturers. So as you said, that was quite a good comfort. I knew the system, I knew the content, I knew how everything worked and I knew where to go for support. But you're absolutely right with the imposter syndrome. It seems to be a very common theme throughout academia, regardless of your experience, etc. You know, some professors that are very well regarded talk about having imposter syndrome and in the beginning it really overwhelmed me because I was so young in particular because I wasn't much older than some of my students some of them may have been 21 in their final year and I was just about to turn 23 when I started so there really wasn't much of an age gap and I was quite concerned that they'd think well how do you have the experience and the qualifications to be teaching me my degree but the staff and my colleagues really sort of supported me there and showed me that you know they wouldn't be asking me to do this if they didn't think that I was capable and I'll never forget my first seminar I was so nervous kind of like legs shaking was trying to really play it cool and I think I must have just blurted out words for the whole first hour <laughs> there wasn't really much structure to it the nerves really did get the better of me 
But I remember my manager saying, the first is always the worst. So I just thought, well, it has to get better from here. And it wasn't awful. The students did engage and there was some good discussion going on. So I think it probably could have gone worse. And I just grew from there. Now I have no qualms speaking in front of, you know, hundreds of people. It's it's incredible what this job has done for my confidence and, and public speaking, which I think is a big fear for a lot of people. In terms of my mental health, I don't think it massively impacted it in the way that my mental health has been impacted before. I think it was just sort of general nerves. It potentially did bleed into my mental health in the way that I was, I suppose, anxious about it, but not in the way that I'd ever experienced anxiety before. It was quite mild. And perhaps the overworking side of it, I never really felt that I was finished preparing for a class, etc. I soon learned how to deal with that. And now two years in, that has really, really lessened for me. I don't feel the imposter syndrome too much. Unfortunately, I've had some really great feedback from students and colleagues. So it's I think it's that feedback that's really important that you're therefore aware of whether or not you're doing a good job, what kind of things you can improve on and, and what's working. So fortunately, I'm at a point now, two years in, where... I don't think it's a massive part of how I feel on a day-to-day basis, but there are certainly moments when I think, hang on, I'm not massively confident on this topic. How am I going to ensure that I can deliver this Mm. adequately to the students? Let's talk about COVID-19 because you were only six weeks into your academic career when this once-in-a-lifetime global event happened, Sophie. How did the pandemic affect your career and your mental health alongside it? So if we kind of take the the PhD and the academic journey separately here, because I think the pandemic affected them in different ways. PhD-wise, it's a lot of independent study anyway. It just kind of made it feel more isolating because you're not in the PhD office with people that are going through something similar with you. Fortunately, my director of studies, who's my sort of first PhD supervisor, he's now a great friend of mine, um, Dr Ed Johnston, and we have a really good rapport. So... I could kind of lean on him through the virtual world. And it was a great opportunity for me to engage in that independent study because suddenly I was at home all the time like the rest of us. It kind of gave us that time that we didn't necessarily have before. But with regards to my academic career and lecturing, so it was coming towards the end of the final semester at the time that the pandemic hit. And so the module leaders just kind of took over because we suddenly had to move to the online space and it was very unfamiliar our university hadn't really offered anything like that before so I was mainly doing marking it's very independent again so at that point you know I was just kind of figuring out how to keep a healthy work-to-life balance within the pandemic it would have been very easy for me to just work 12-hour days every day and use that as a distraction the end of that academic year and that first lockdown I think was quite good for me but come the beginning of the new academic year in September, October, I took on a pretty busy teaching role and we'd all kind of learned how to adapt and move to the online space. And again, there were pros and cons to it because I had a lot more time to do things around teaching online. For example, if I had a 20 minute break, if I was on campus, I wouldn't usually use that to do work, but I would use that time at home. But on the other hand, it was very daunting 
beginning to teach online because the students often wouldn't turn their cameras and their microphones on and it was kind of just me sat there Mm. staring at myself reading messages popping up on a screen and in some cases particularly in the beginning sometimes the students wouldn't respond perhaps they didn't know the answer but in a classroom you can kind of yeah you can more easily yeah, 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 yeah exactly so sometimes it did become a little bit difficult when the students weren't really engaging but for the most part I did have a good experience with online teaching and most of the students that I taught were brilliant and I really tried to utilize the online space but again the imposter syndrome kicked in because I was thinking well I'm just kind of sat here looking at myself I'm the only voice that I can hear am I doing a good enough job are they listening to me you know all these questions come into play fast forward to now we're back to normal face-to-face teaching and I'm really enjoying it again and it's it's shown me why I started this job um had a really good start to this semester and the students are just brilliant I think they've really missed the physical space of the teaching so they're even more engaged this year one of the issues you wanted to discuss in this section, Sophie, was work-life balance in academia. And you've already touched on it a little bit there when it comes to sort of getting extra minutes in that you wouldn't be able to do on campus that you did at home. You said there's a workaholic culture in academia, or it's certainly in your experience. Can you unpack that for me? And how have you seen it affect your mental health or the colleagues you work with? Yeah, so there's a bit of a phrase in academia that can probably be applied to other disciplines, but that you're kind of overworked and underpaid and and potentially underappreciated and it's right I think the thing with academia is you're never finished with anything because there's always something more to learn there's always another paper to read there's always another study to read etc there's always a growth mindset isn't it yeah yeah, 100% (laughs) there's always another article you can be writing it's just never ending there's no limit to it which in some ways I think is really beneficial because obviously like you say, growth mindset. But on the other hand, feeling like you've never done enough can kind of start to weigh you down. And if you do let that get to you in a more sort of physical space as well, you're really putting that extra time into these things and perhaps sacrificing time with family, time with friends, time doing your hobbies, you know, sleep, for example. I know some PhD students that stay up really late writing. And I think when my first full academic year started, because it was still quite new to me, I was having to do a lot more to learn things, to learn how everything works, potentially relearn some of the material. I think where I was quite lucky is a lot of the modules I was teaching, I had actually taken myself as a student. But on the other (laughs) hand, I'm the lecturer now, so I need to know so much more. Can't just stay one week ahead. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I really need to know the full scope, because if I'm asked questions and I don't know anything, again, I'm going to feel like that you know, oh, I'm an idiot, I don't know how to answer this question, and and they're going to question my ability to be here teaching them. The imposter syndrome kicks in, and it really does start to weigh me down. I felt so much pressure, and particularly in the marking period, and I think marking becomes really overwhelming, because it's a great volume, and you have a kind of short turnaround when you're balancing other things in your life. You might still be teaching, and you have to mark on top of that, it can be quite really... monotonous as well. Oh, yeah, it gets very yeah. kind of repetitive towards the end. But I'm the sort of person that doesn't try to let external influences affect me now. I mean, we'll talk more about my history of mental health later. But <laughs> at the moment, I really try to kind of not let 
things like that overwhelm me because my approach is, you know, if it's a little bit late, no one's going to die. And I always strive to meet deadlines. But if it's really starting to impact on my mental health, I know that I can speak to managers, etc. And, and try and do something about that workload. But if we go back to sort of the last assessment period in the, the last academic year, so this is at the end of my first full academic year, I was absolutely drowning in marking. I think I had about 300 scripts to mark Jesus. within a month, which most of my colleagues had said they didn't have that volume. I really did have a lot of marking to do. And I was really struggling with it because I was getting stressed. And as most mm. of us know, when you're stressed, you don't perform well. But then you get more stressed because you're not performing well. So it was like a vicious cycle. I would open my laptop in the morning, so I was still working from home at this point, and I feel so stressed that I'd procrastinate instead of actually doing the thing that would alleviate the stress by getting it done. And it got to a point where I got so frustrated that I cried. And I don't typically do that. I'm not really a crier. So I knew something was wrong. But I made it. And I did it all within the deadline. And I wasn't working ridiculous hours. I was maybe working like nine till six, nine till seven. They weren't awful. And for the most part, we were kind of still under restrictions. Didn't have anywhere to be in the evenings. The biggest thing for me was realising at the end of it that my anxieties about getting it, not getting it done rather, just didn't manifest and they, they weren't real. And I think the more those anxieties got to me, the more it stopped me from actually doing the work. And therefore that was more likely to have the impact on whether or not it was going to be done. I'm currently in the middle of marking at the moment and I've just got such a better attitude towards it and I don't feel like I'm drowning in work despite the fact that I have a lot to mark, but around like 200 scripts or something like that. I found a really good rhythm with it. I've learned how to manage my time a lot better and in the beginning it was kind of this big job hanging over my head that was stressing me out a little bit and I realised you know what you've done it before in worse circumstances you've had the experience now you know how to manage this and it's actually been a lot better than I anticipated it to be so again it was just a reminder that my anxieties aren't real you know they they don't tend to manifest so just taking it each day at a time is the best way to approach it rather than me thinking well I've got 200 scripts due in 20 days it's thinking well how many can I get done today and then how many can I get done tomorrow when tomorrow comes just really taking that step-by-step -step approach. That's a good approach to take, Soph. Let's talk about Soph Talks now, because that's the reason I came across you. That's how Lucy and Verity, I think, retweeted your work. So why did you feel inspired to start it? And what did you want to achieve with it? It actually started as a criminal justice blog, but I never published it. I showed a few friends. I can't even remember what I called it now. But... I've always been really passionate about writing. I even considered doing an English degree at some point. I did English A-level. So I've always just really enjoyed writing and and sort of showing the world my work. But I didn't really know how to do that within the context of the topics I wanted to write about. Because obviously within academia, you typically publish work. And it's very challenging. And I was obviously at the start of my academic career. There wasn't really something I was thinking about at the time. So I thought, well, how can I talk about these issues in a way that's relevant to me now and thought well a blog is probably the most appropriate thing to do and as I'd started this criminal justice blog and again this was just kind of during the pandemic fill in time this was sort of when the first lockdown hit and I was I wasn't teaching online I wanted to kind of put my energy into something that was going to benefit me in the long run and that I would enjoy 
and I realised actually there's so many different things that I'm passionate about, it's not just criminal justice issues, so how can I change the current blog that I had at the time to incorporate that? So I came up with the name of Sofa Talks to kind of signify that I can talk about any different issue really. And I think where it really started and gained notoriety was with the mental health series that I did. Mm-hmm. And my intention behind that was to give people a platform to talk about their mental health experiences. For them to not only be able to reflect and see how far they've come, but for them to also instill a bit of encouragement and support and guidance in others and, and show other people that, you know, this is completely normal and that you're not alone. I really wanted to sort of normalise these issues whilst giving these people a platform and really showing everyone that it's completely normal to feel these things and to experience these things and that you're not alone and there are people out there that that will understand you and that will support you and I've written my own mental health blog now and my friends that have done so have all talked about what a weight off their shoulders it was just kind of getting all of that off their chest and that they couldn't believe the support that they received, that that people were reaching out to them and sending really lovely comments and and words of support. So yeah, that was kind of the main purpose behind that. And now I'm kind of taking it that step further to talk about other issues, still talk about criminal justice, predominantly sexual violence, that's my area, but also sustainability, human rights, all those kinds of things. What has the platform taught you about yourself or others? Has it taught you anything you weren't expecting or surprised you? I was really pleased with the feedback just about how I'm able to take quite sometimes complex topics and make it digestible for sort of any kind of audience. And I think outside of the content, what it's taught me as well is in the beginning, I kind of tried to keep up with this schedule of posting and trying to post regularly. But sometimes I find it quite difficult to force myself when I wasn't in the zone and I'm really feeling this topic. So now I kind of have an approach to just doing it when I feel like I want to write about it when something happens and I think right now's the time for me to write about something or when I start thinking about something I think right now's the time for me to kind of give this a voice because before again I was putting a lot of pressure on myself to keep generating content and I was so engrossed in that that I kind of wasn't enjoying the process of oh this is something I feel really passionate about at the moment becomes a full-time job (laughs) yeah and I can imagine you can relate to that with the podcast yeah I think this is number 118 for you so oh yeah unofficially it's 165 wow okay because those are there's like 50 other episodes of mini series but yeah this is like the main series 118 yeah yes I'm sure you can relate to that and (laughs) And kind of producing that content, but I imagine this is a lot more time consuming than me writing a writing a blog for an hour and just proofreading it. <laughs> hey, it's whatever you do and however you have to do it. Like some things can take longer than others. I choose to do this. Do you know what I mean? Like I could yeah. take a break, but then I realise what am I doing with my life? <laughs> I think that's uh, that's the great thing for, with both of us that you know we are doing this because we're really passionate about it. But it's not something that we're doing for any other reason than to to give these issues a voice and. Yeah, there's no money in mental platform. health, like I, I say often to people. So yeah. <laughs> people ask me if I make cash from this. I'm like, there's no, no money. exactly. Even the mental health charities are penniless. So let's move on to your PhD, which was in law and how, like you've said, rape myths, misconceptions and victim blaming can impact police investigations, Sophie. You've kind of already discussed what kind of sparked the interest. The main thing you wanted to discuss here is prevention measures for women. 
So in light of the Sarah Everard murder, which was done by a serving Metropolitan Police officer, there are a lot of uninformed opinions being put out <laughs> there about what women should be doing if they're approached by a plainclothes police officer, most of which I found quite baffling. I wondered if they were briefed at all before doing those interviews, to be honest. Can you tell me about your perspective on prevention campaigns which are targeted at women specifically and how that can impact their mental health and I guess how it impacted yours when you saw it too? I really have to try and stay offline sometimes because... (laughs) Stay offline right now, please. The Joe Rogan stuff is doing too much. It just... (laughs) Oh, I get so angry and I don't want to let it affect me like that. But yeah, with regards to some of the women's prevention strategies, they're just aimed at the wrong people. It's just putting the responsibility of sexual violence back on women. And again, sexual violence isn't a gender-based issue, but the majority of it is committed by men against women. That's always the kind of centre that the media focuses on. So there's suddenly all this pressure for women to do this, do that. I remember there was talking about, you know, installing more lampposts and things like that. And I just think, right, for for a start, the majority of sexual violence is committed by somebody that you know, and it's not in some, like, random public area. So how is that really going to benefit the 90% of the victims that aren't going to experience the sexual violence in that way? And it's yeah, exactly stranger what rape you versus said. acquaintance rape, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. <clears throat> and it's stranger rape, although it's very serious and we need to tackle that and we need to prevent that, it only amounts to 10%. So I really do not see the connection with all these prevention strategies when ultimately it's actually the people that you know that you need to be potentially mm. more cautious of. And that's a really hard thing for people to accept. It's a really hard pill to swallow. But as you said, it's these uninformed opinions and... Unfortunately, a lot of the time they gain that kind of attention and that notoriety, and it it's just really counterproductive. And, Police in nightclubs being one, I see. Oh, and that's not exactly going to make women feel safe at the moment. I can tell you that. <laughs> but so it it, it, oh. it it just makes you wonder who's making these decisions and based on what information. Mm. But I just see it as another form of victim blaming. A lot of the suggestions were about how women should behave. Coming back to how we should compose ourselves in public, what kind of routes we should take, things like that. That shouldn't be on us. It, it should be for perpetrators to be taught and told not to commit sexual violence. I'm in two minds with all of this because there are obviously some things that I do where I am cautious and I do kind of take protection measures. But on the other hand, I think, well, I'm not just going to live in a box anymore and yeah, and no, you know, be told what to do by society for fear of sexual violence being committed against me because... The more we conform to that, the more they're probably going to try and... We live in fear, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and introduce those scaremongering narratives and place more shackles on us, essentially. And I view that as victim-blaming, really. Why is it for women to protect themselves? Why is it not to tell men in particular not to commit sexual violence? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I saw this dismissed when it came out by women as well, when there was the whole thing about let's put curfews on men. And I was just thinking, oh, come God. on, please. Yeah. And that's not fair like, on the men that don't extremes, do anything wrong. Like... <laughs> <laughs> that's punishing people that don't need to be punished. You know, there are plenty yeah. of men out there that would never dream of committing sexual violence. They never have and they never will. So we really need to do more to tackle this. There's a lot more depth to it than just slapping curfews or putting street lamps out. This mm. is a cultural issue. It, it's so deeply ingrained within our society. So it's almost like putting a band-aid over something that needs stitches. Yeah. You know, it's it's just not getting to the root of the problem. 
there was one recent public service announcement or campaign video, however you want to call it, Sophie, in Scotland a few months ago, which tried to address the problem of male sexual violence against women. It was called Don't Be That Guy. Now, I have quite a few reservations about this campaign because it did a couple of good things, which we'll go into in a little bit, but it also said some quite problematic things as well. Can you talk about your opinion on it when you saw it? If I'm honest, like it was so long ago, I can't remember the specific examples. <laughs> because it feels like a different lifetime ago, doesn't it? I, I know that you and I had this conversation before, but I can't remember the exact example of what I found irritating. I think when I first saw it, I thought, okay, this has the potential to be quite progressive and put the onus on men and change that, who's receiving that responsibility or who that responsibility is placed under rather. I found some of the comments a bit odd and it wasn't necessarily getting to, again, the root of the problems. I think, again, it was a bit of a plaster when stitches. It was just kind of a quick, perhaps not very well thought through response yeah to again something that has a much deeper level to it Mm. i saw some good things it said so there was some good things it was raising so like it challenged sexual expectations from buying a girl drinks or dinner for example and it challenged sending an unsolicited dick pic or getting a girl too drunk to consent and then trying to take her back home or pressuring them into sex like that was all good i agreed with that and then what it also mixed in with though it said there was like a line that said ever called a girl dull or you ever give a girl a compliment like nice and wondered why you didn't get a thank you. Then there was one point where it was like ever see a girl on a bus and thought about her sexually. And I was like, well, are we policing thought now? That was a bit weird. And then I was <laughs> what made me love is like if you go up north and probably in Bristol, Sophie, as you imagine, you can't move without getting called love or darling or something like that by men or women, you know, quite affectionately. Is there a danger here that Although it challenged very and correctly predatory instincts on one hand, but also it was like policing male sexual desire or flirtatious behaviour and conflating the two. Yeah, I think this is where it's really, really hard to strike that balance between, like you say, sexual desire and then something that's potentially predatory behaviour. You'll have some women that will just not want to be complimented by men at sure. all because it makes them feel uncomfortable and and, and its tone so. its context yeah, yeah i get that yeah but yeah. on the other hand how otherwise how are you supposed to strike up these relationships and this is one of the biggest issues i have with consent i know we're slightly going off topic here but can people not ever chat each other up in a bar anymore gen z can't but again i think <laughs> gen z <are> terrified <laughs> yeah but i think as i said it's a really hard thing to balance and it's all contextual there's no kind of like right or wrong answer there It was really dependent on the people involved, the context that they're in, and the intention behind that. So I think, like you say, are we policing thought? Because really, this is on a case-by-case basis. I think it did do well to kind of make men aware, perhaps, that they Mm. might make women feel uncomfortable by making those comments. But ultimately, women also make these kind of comments towards men. So can, therefore, women not have their own sexual desire etc like you say it's kind of like policing thought and I think it kind of puts a barrier between potentially healthy relationships as well because how are they supposed to develop how are you supposed to pay an interest in someone and there is a very clear sign as to when someone's being creepy or when they're actually just genuinely paying you a compliment 
Yeah, exactly. Before we move on to the last part of this topic, Sophie, which you want to talk about, which is desensitization. I just want to quickly talk about a couple of things in the criminal justice system, which I see a lot happen in the courts. So I want to inform the listeners here. The first one I wanted to ask you to talk about is the rough sex defense, which I believe has been outlawed now. And then the second one, which I read about in Chanel Miller's book, if you've read that, she was a Stanford University sexual assault survivor. And her lawyer said to her, her lawyer was a female lawyer, said, we really want a majority male jury because women tend to victim blame on juries. Now, I found that quite shocking when I read that. So I just wanted, can you talk about the rough sex defence and then can you talk about potentially what happens on juries as well between men and women's yeah, attitudes? Yeah, sure. So in regards to the rough sex defence, it's not massively my area of expertise. Um, I actually have a colleague, I think she's just begun her PhD research into this. But from my understanding of it, obviously it's there to protect women who have been killed by men. But on the other hand... Again, it's really trying to strike that balance. People are allowed to have sexual autonomy and if they want to engage in BDSM type behaviours, then sure. you know why should they not be able to do that? But on the other hand, it's minimising the risk of harm and not allowing people who intentionally cause harm to get away with it. So again, it's She's just using really... a shield, basically. Yeah, yeah, and it's striking that balance. But as I said before, this is all on like a case-by-case basis. There's so many characteristics of all these different things And ultimately, I don't think that we should be policing people's sexual autonomy. But I obviously am a massive advocate for protecting women. So Mm -hmm. women in particular, obviously, again, this probably isn't a purely gender based issue. There are going to be different gender narratives at play, but it's aimed to protect women from men. Mm -hmm. So it's just really hard to strike that balance. How do you provide people with the sexual autonomy that they rightly deserve? You know, I suppose it's essentially a human right. On the other hand, how do we protect women from potentially dangerous men? Going back to the juries then, do you say it was Stanford University in America? Yeah, it was Stanford University. Yeah. yeah, their jury practice is very different to ours. But with regards to what I know about England and Wales, it's very difficult to research juries because we have what we call jury equity. And that means okay. that it's an offence if the jury disclose any of their kind of decision-making process behind reaching their verdict. So the only way that we've been able to access jury decision-making research is to have what we call mock trials. So they're not real. And therefore, if you have people acting as a jury, then you can obviously interview them about their experiences and their decision-making processes. Mm. But the problem is it's not real. So one of the best things is to make them think it's real. But again, there's kind of like (laughs) practical difficulties around that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So from the current research, it does suggest that juries may be susceptible to endorsing rape myths and therefore that could have an impact on the case. But this isn't a very well-researched topic, unfortunately, because of the barrier that we have to that research. But the jury are the general public, obviously. And if you look at rape myth acceptance in the general public, men are far more likely to endorse rape myths than women. So I'd have to look into the research that has been conducted by this person. And I'm quite interested in that. I will probably go away and... um, have read of that book now and see how it kind of compares to England and Wales. But based on my current research, that's not the case in our jurisdiction, no. Let's talk about desensitisation before we reflect on your academic journey, Sophie, because you wanted to talk about it as reading and hearing about sexual violence. You know, that's what you do in this field. And it's been quite difficult for you, I must imagine. So can you tell me about how absorbing this content has been for your mental health? 
I started studying sexual offences when I was in my second year at uni, so about four years ago. And obviously it's quite shocking. And I remember in my first year on criminal law, did teach us sex offences. I teach on criminal law now. We don't teach sex offences any longer, but it was kind of optional because obviously it's very difficult for some people to listen about, um, particularly if there are any sort of survivors that were on the course, etc. But when I was studying the sex offences module that I now teach on, I did find it quite difficult sometimes. There were some, some issues that were brought up or some sort of accounts that were recounted that were very hard to hear. I don't think it's massively impacted my mental health at that point. But in the last couple of years, I suppose I have become desensitised to it. Mainly the statistics, because I read them mm. over and over, day in, day out. You know, the low conviction rate. Our conviction rate's been at about 6% for the last five years. That hasn't really changed by much, maybe a percent or two. So, you know, those kind of statistics aren't changing and it is very depressing. But I think for me in the last 18 months or so, in and outside of my research, I've become probably more angry in a healthy way because it means I can do something about these issues and it kind of feeds that passion again to do something with it. But the fact that we're still here for me is right. like one of the biggest things, like nothing changes. You know, you look at the murder of Sarah Rod and, and what has actually changed since then. That was about a year ago. Mm. I don't think we've moved much further forward despite the kind of cultural element where we all addressed it and you know we're voicing our opinions on social media that's all well and good anyway (laughs) exactly we're looking at the same police force so there's only so much we can all do unfortunately but I feel like I get quite frustrated on one hand being desensitized to it but on the other hand I'll have some days where even though I've read this information before it will just really kind of strike a nerve with me and really get me down especially as a woman and yeah I suppose sometimes particularly when I'm reading personal accounts of people's sexual violence is is when those statistics kind of become more real I hate that within the way we have to portray it because I mean it's the same with COVID isn't it when we look at like COVID deaths it's like it's not a number these are people who have experienced trauma but ultimately that's the only way we can kind of portray the prevalence of it but then on the other hand you know it is those personal accounts that stop you from coming desensitised to it. They kind of make you feel a bit more human with it, I suppose. But ultimately, it, it does drive my passion as much as I don't enjoy feeling frustrated, upset, angry, etc. But, you know, I just think someone's got to do it. People ask me quite a lot because day in, day out, I am looking at quite depressive stuff. Nothing that we talk about in our criminal justice system is very positive. Um, so people kind of ask me, you know, does that not get you down? And I think I just have different days with it. Some days it just really won't bother me and then some days it really will get mm. me down. But I have to remember that the core reason for me doing this is to make a difference and that's the thing that keeps me going and keeps me engaging with this kind of material. Let's reflect on your journey now, Sophie, then. What has it taught you about yourself? It's taught me in a positive way that I can do anything that I put my mind to. There are experiences that I've had that I wouldn't have dreamed of a few years ago when I started my degree. Um, I published a book last year, things like that. I did not think I'd be doing that before the age of 25. It's taught me that my work to life balance is so important and that prioritising your mental health comes before any work that you ever do. It's taught me 
that there are a lot of issues in the world, but it's also taught me that there is an awful lot of good people out there that are campaigning for change and that really care about these issues. And it's really taught me that I should always do something that I love because as we've talked about in this podcast, there are days when I struggle with the workload, etc. But ultimately, I'm really grateful that so early on in my life, I've been able to pursue something that I enjoy and that I really actually get something out of. There's a real life application here with some of the work that I do so if you'd asked me that question a couple of years ago it probably would have been a bit more negative but I'm pretty happy with the way that things are going I've really had to learn how to balance all of these things and and how to prioritize certain things what to do what not to do etc and it's all been a huge learning curve but I think I can finally say I'm in a position where I am sort of truly happy with the nature of my work and and where it's heading We've talked about Sophie, the academic. Let's go deeper and talk about your own mental health journey, Sophie. So tell me first about early life in Cornwall, teenage years, family, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Sophie we meet here? I had a really good upbringing. I cannot complain about my upbringing at all. I have a very, very close family. had some wonderful friends growing up, a lot of whom I'm still in contact with now. And for the most part, when I look back on my childhood and growing up, I have really, really fond memories. But I really did struggle with my mental health as a teenager. And actually, as I was talking to my mum about coming onto a podcast and the sort of things we were going to be discussing, she actually reminded me that my mental health problems started a lot earlier <laughs> than I had remembered. Because she remembered having to take me to a therapy session or two. I don't think it was anything significant, but, you know, typical of the state of our mental health services we think I must have been about 14 maybe 15 if I'm honest it's a little bit of a blur and obviously that's quite common with mental health problems but I think it was sort of around feeling very anxious and depressed I think I had a lot of social anxiety at this point and what I did remember after we discussed this was feeling very isolated my mum won't mind me saying this but she has had quite an ongoing battle with her mental health she suffers from a medical condition and We eventually found out that her really awful depressive spells were part of that condition, but they weren't really being treated because the main condition hadn't been identified. Um, It was more like a physical condition that had... Knock-on effects, yeah. Depression and anxiety and all those sorts of things that came with it. So fortunately, eventually she got the help that she needed. But as much as I didn't want my mum to go through those things, and there were some quite dark times for her when I was growing up, on the other hand, I'm really grateful for her because... She had experienced those things and therefore she could recognise that I wasn't doing great and therefore could offer her support. So at this point, I'm still kind of at school, probably like year 10. And I've always been a very confident person. I'm very sociable. As you know, I like to talk. (laughs) So I also really enjoyed school. Hence, you know, the route I've kind of gone down. I've always enjoyed learning and I had a really great experience at school. I know a lot of people look back and think, oh, I hated school. I really enjoyed school and I was gutted to finish. And suddenly I didn't want to be going into school anymore because of this kind of like social anxiety that I was feeling. And hats off to my mum. She really supported me with that. I remember in, I think it was year eight or something, I won an award for having the best attendance in the whole year group. I didn't miss a single day of school. Even when I'd be feeling poorly, I'd still go in. So for me to suddenly not want to go to school, my mum knew something was really wrong. And rightly so, she let me have the time off. But what I do remember about that time is that she had to lie about why I was having that time. I was obviously, if you remember, your 
parents or whoever, parents and carers, would have to call the school and explain, oh, Sophie's not coming in today because blah, blah, blah. Because at this point, mental health wasn't really talked about. And we're only talking, you know, 10 years ago. But particularly mental health in teenagers, you know, oh, you're just overreacting, etc. There's nothing wrong with you. You've got nothing to worry about. You're a teenager. So on the one hand, I had my really supportive mum, dad, my nan, etc., other family members. But on the other hand, I had a kind of society where I didn't really talk about it. So I think that probably had more of an effect than I realised. And obviously, being so young at the time, I didn't really reflect on that too much. But when I look back, it did feel quite isolating. I didn't really talk to my friends about it. And as much as I'm grateful that I had my adult family members supporting me, I didn't really have anyone my own age that I could lean on. I felt very embarrassed. I didn't feel like I was taken seriously if I ever did try to address these things. And because I was an only child, you know, I didn't have like a family member of a similar age to to kind of lean on. Then I finished school and I started college and everything kind of got better for a while. And then I believe when I was around, must have been about 17 in my last year of college, my mental health really started to suffer again. So I took it upon myself to go to the doctors and they suggested that I needed some therapy. But the problem was, because I was over 16, I didn't suit the child therapy services. But I was under 18, so I couldn't have access to the adult. So purgatory, you were stuck in? Yeah, pretty much. Eventually, I think they sent me to the adult one, because they were like, well, you know, you're 17, you're 18 soon. And I was in a quite dark place, really. Wasn't getting much fulfilment out of life. I probably put on a very good facade to the world. I don't think a lot of people would think that about me. Yeah, I was in a pretty dark place, and didn't really feel like I had many peers to turn to. And the therapy, counselling, however you want to call it, I think at the time I thought it was working, although I didn't massively engage with it, but I was just grateful to have somebody listening to me and taking me seriously. And I think that in itself took a lot of pressure off me. But it was just your standard sort of CBT. And I just don't think, whilst it really works for some, I don't think it was appropriate for what I needed at that point. What do you think you'd have needed? I don't know, to be honest, because, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about the therapy I had later on in life in a little while, but I don't know what it was that I actually did with that therapist, so I couldn't name it. I'm not an expert around sort of mental health and therapy practices, but I just, looking back, I don't think CBT was what I needed. And the first thing that my therapist that I had later on said to me was, I'm not going to use CBT with you, it's it's not going to, she didn't deem that to be the most appropriate approach. Let's fast forward to university now because your first two years were largely positive you enjoyed Bristol as a city and it's fair to say you had found yourself however at the start of your final year your third year in 2018 your uncle who had been living with cancer on and off for nine years sadly passed away can you first of all tell me about the man he was and his relationship to you yeah as I said I'm really really lucky because my family have a very very close knit relationship People throughout my life have told me how lucky they think I am and how sort of jealous they are that we are all so close. On this side of my family, it's my mum's side with two sisters. They're all best friends. And so this was my auntie's husband. And he was just such a great influence in my life. He was always the fun uncle, you know, the one you could always play with as a child. And even as a teenager, he would always be like the silly one. And... He had worked really hard in life and reaped the benefits of that. And he always just taught me the sky's your limit and anything is possible. He was really supportive 
with my mental health journey and all those sorts of things. So yeah, he played a massive part in my life and in a really positive way. Clearly your uncle was a really positive person, Sophie. And you said the way you carry his legacy is not to take everything or anything, I should say, for granted in life and make the most of it. How are you doing that in practice? Yeah, so he, even till the end, he held his positive attitude. He was just phenomenal, very brave. And yeah, he just really taught me not to take the small things for granted. For example, he was really into his cooking. And some of my most prominent memories would be him and my auntie in their kitchen. And he'd always be kind of getting me to try his food, making lovely dinners, etc. And I just remember thinking such a simple thing brought them so much joy and brought the rest of us so much joy. And over lockdown in particular, everyone was kind of trying to find joy in the smaller things. So I'd kind of already begun that as he passed away about six months before the lockdown started. But it really just taught me not to take the small things for granted, but to also really try and make the most of your life and the time that you've got here. Because I'm sure my family will agree, although our time with him is limited, he had a wonderful life and the time that he did have and that he did have with us was very special. And we look back with so many fond memories and um, I feel very grateful to have that level of memories with somebody that wasn't part of my sort of blood family. But how I do that now, as I said, in the pandemic, I really try to focus on that. And I just really try and make everything I do in life have a purpose, even if it's just getting up in the morning and doing my skincare routine, like there's a good purpose behind all of those things. And just making sure you're not always caught up in And I think coming back to academia, this is probably something I left out, but it's always moving on to the next thing. There's always pressure. Like you never really reflect on, and I think as humans we're guilty of this, we never really reflect on previous experiences and certainly the present moment. I think at this point in my life, I was very caught up in the future and he kind of taught me to ground myself a bit more and to really just be present and enjoy the moment because as cliche as it is, you know, you never get to experience the moment other than the moment that you're actually in at that time. So yeah, it's just really about creating those healthy habits and steering towards that more positive mindset. When it comes to the grief itself, you said that because you're in a different location, you struggled to address it properly. Do you think you disassociated here or was it simply a case of not being in that home environment and being around your family who were grieving themselves? So maybe your mind didn't believe it was quite real? Yeah, so as you said, he had quite a long journey with his cancer and my mental health was pretty good for the first few years at uni. I absolutely love Bristol, hence why I still live there now. Really, really enjoyed my time there. And just coming from a small town in Cornwall, it, it was just so exciting and I found people who were very similar to me, had similar interests, etc. And then in my third year, obviously the pressure's on, it's your final year at uni. There's a lot of weight to it. But... I remember one night having this really weird experience and I now know that it was a panic attack but at the time I couldn't identify it. I just thought I was dying. I was lying on my bed with my boyfriend and I just had this really weird experience in my body and I thought I was either having a heart attack or a stroke. I just felt so weird. I can't describe it and I think people that have experienced panic attacks will know exactly what I'm talking about but it's very hard to articulate and fortunately my boyfriend is incredible. He's very supportive with my mental health and just quickly kind of came into action and calmed me down very well and I felt okay again and I thought well was that a panic attack I was kind of like googling around what that was and what I had just experienced and a couple months later it happened again and then it would happen a couple of weeks later 
then a couple of weeks later again, until eventually it was happening almost every single day, if not multiple times a day. And so I realised, you know, something's really wrong here. And I went to the therapy that the university offer, but unfortunately you can only have one appointment per month. So it really just wasn't working for me. And I couldn't figure out what was wrong because what my conscious mind was telling me was that everything was fine in my life. I had so much positivity in my life at that point. I'd just bought a house at the age of 21. I was doing exceptionally well in my degree. I had so many amazing friends, family members. I had my boyfriend, was having so much fun. And I did, for the most part, feel really fulfilled. So I was really kind of struggling to understand why this was happening. As I said, I'd experienced anxiety before, but there was a clear reason for that. And I just really could not understand why this was happening and therefore how to stop it. And so over the summer, I decided, right, it's time for me to look into therapy. So at this point, my uncle was really ill. And as you said, I was living in Bristol, my family were in Cornwall. And I was I was coming home a lot. I was coming home potentially every two to three weeks, which normally I'd come home every couple of months. I was spending as much time with my family as I possibly could and fortunately made some lovely memories with him towards the end of his life and my family were great at keeping in touch as well but I suppose I could have that distance from it and I think really what I was doing was kind of pushing it to the back of my mind because I knew that once I let it all in it would really impact my degree and how well I would perform so I kind of just buried it I didn't really talk about it unless I was home with the family I tried to not think about it too much particularly when I was actually doing the work, it would more sort of be the evening time when I could kind of sit down and have some time with my thoughts. And the panic attacks were getting so, so frequent at this point. They were becoming debilitating. I was not wanting to leave the house, etc. because I didn't know what was going to happen. I was so reliant on my boyfriend. When he would be at work, I would just be absolutely lost and just feeling absolutely awful. I was really dependent on his support. And as I said, he was really brilliant. So thank you, Charlie. But... I hadn't kind of got to the point of organising better therapy at this point and we were due to go on holiday, myself and my parents and Charlie were due to go on holiday. We are quite well travelled, my family, and I've, I've been to Australia a couple of times on my own, quite a young age as well. So, you know, travelling isn't something that phases me, like I've never been afraid of flying. And suddenly I was so nervous to get on this plane it was overwhelming. I did not want to get on this plane. I thought I was going to die if I got on this plane. And that's when my mum really knew that something was wrong because she was like, this isn't you. And I'd kind of not told my family how I was feeling because I didn't want to take away from everything else that was going on. And I also didn't want to put that additional stress and worry onto them. So I think it was at this point my mum realised, okay, something's not right with Sophie. You know, something's going on here. I went to the doctors because... I had organised therapy at this point, but it wasn't for like another month or so. There was a bit of a wait list. And this was private therapy. I could not get any help with the NHS at this point. But I went to the doctors because, I mean, people have different opinions on this. But my approach is try and deal with it through the therapy. And if you need to take the medication, then obviously you can. But I didn't think I needed to take medication. I just wanted to get through these flights so I wanted something to kind of calm me down whilst I was on holiday until I could start the therapy when I came back so I was prescribed sertraline and it was an experience to say the least obviously with these kind of drugs you have to wait a month to six weeks for them to really kick in and the doctor warned me that 
things might get worse before they would get better but the first day that I took them I was like erratic I was so high energy it was like all my problems had just dissolved I was just in such a good mood but it was kind of like the other end of the spectrum it was like almost too happy (laughs) if that's possible and then the next day the low came and for the first time in probably almost a decade I felt pretty much suicidal I didn't see the point in life I didn't see the point in getting out of bed I didn't want to do anything I just couldn't see me ever being better and getting out of this position that I was in with my mental health and that was a pretty dark day and again fortunately my boyfriend recognized this and said I think it's a medication you need to consider whether it's the best thing for you to continue to take that or whether you can kind of deal with how you're feeling for now and then come back and have the therapy and fortunately when I stopped taking it I felt better the next day went on holiday a couple of days later and I decided to have a complete social media break and maybe had one or two panic attacks so they had massively subsided at this point I think spending the time with my family like that was really good for me as well and just having that real disconnect from the rest of the world and all the pressures in life so then I came back and started my therapy journey and one of the things that my therapist said to me was that where I'm sort of so high functioning and busy and she actually said intelligence so I was like thank you for for complimenting you know (laughs) complimenting me and she said my brain just does not switch off and because my brain doesn't switch off it means I don't spend a lot of time dealing with my feelings so therefore when I was sort of lying down watching tv at night thinking I'm fine it gave the feelings that I was potentially ignoring a chance to kind of surface up and that's where the panic attacks would come from so where I was keeping myself busy with my degree and shutting out what was going on with my family and my uncle then when I'd relax at night my body would finally start to respond to that kind of trauma and those emotions so they were obviously manifesting as panic attacks and I spent about six months having weekly or fortnightly therapy with this incredible lady and I can say from January 2020 so in the last two years I haven't had a panic attack since so the therapy was brilliant for me I'm very fortunate that it was such a short time in that therapy because I know some people can spend years trying to get to the root of these kind of panic attacks but yeah it really really worked for me and obviously different things work for different people but although I had that kind of longer journey with it it really meant that my perseverance paid off. Unfortunately, my uncle did pass away in the summer, just shortly after we got back from this holiday that I was talking about. I was in therapy at the time, which was quite good timing, I suppose, that I was I was having that support at that time. And, you know, my family, we all pulled together and really supported each other within our grief. And, you know, grief's a weird thing, isn't it? I think it's one of those things that comes in waves when you least expect it. I think because I've had so much awareness of my thoughts and feelings, I've managed to deal with it a lot better than I would have a few years ago. But yeah, that grief journey certainly has had its lows. But again, I kind of just try and tune in with the things that make me feel good and reflecting on my uncle in a really positive way to try and not let the grief overshadow it too much. Before we reflect on your mental health journey, Sophie, you said you had a conversation with your friend, which I want to read a quote from here. She said to you, we needed that downtime to be the making of us. So given the fact that, like you said, you haven't had a panic attack for two years, is adversity 
with our mental health the very thing that defines our recovery yeah so at the point of that quote my boyfriend and my housemate were living with me and we were in the lockdown I think I was quite consumed with my grief at this point in a good and a bad way I was spending a lot of time reflecting on memories but also feeling pretty down and really really missing my uncle but in terms of the anxiety that had kind of all subsided at this point really as I said I think I finished the therapy maybe in the January and obviously we went into the lockdown in the March and my housemate and I have both had our mental health struggles and we had both really been there for each other and we were both very anxious people obviously so I've talked about my anxiety but she was quite an anxious person as well so you would anticipate perhaps that dealing with that lockdown would kind of heighten those anxieties a lot of my anxiety as well was around health so you would think you know that suddenly there's this like deadly virus going around that it would really spiral me but we both reflected on that and realized we handled it absolutely brilliantly and we think it gave us the time that we needed that downtime to really reflect on who we were who we've become you know what kind of journey we've been on and again implementing those healthy habits where in you know a fast-paced western society we tend to kind of neglect some of the more important parts of our life because other things in capitalism become so sort of overwhelming then it really did just give us that downtime that we needed to just reflect and figure out a few things and just really deal with our emotions and I was quite worried at the beginning that that would be a sort of spiraling time for me but I think actually my mental health was pretty good and I I was very fortunate for the circumstances that I found myself in during those lockdowns you know had a roof over my head had some loved ones living with me you know we were able to pay the bills put food on the table work from home etc so we really learned what to actually be grateful for. And I think that took a lot of pressure of our anxieties off of us. Before we move on to the mental health chat, let's reflect now. If you could go back and talk to maybe the 11-year-old Sophie who was struggling with her anxiety or the 19-year-old Sophie who was kind of having a lot of panic attacks and going to university at that point, or the Sophie who was struggling with her grief of her uncle or struggling to get on a plane. What would you say to her, knowing what you do now? I think I would say to just take the small steps. One of the biggest things I've done in life is worry about the future. And as I said earlier, things that don't actually manifest. So that's something I really try to ground myself with today. I'd sort of go back and say to a younger Sophie to just literally focus on the next hour and and what you can do in that next hour to make yourself feel better or who you can talk to and I think talking is also one of the important things as I said for a while I kind of buried all of this and didn't feel like I could talk to anyone I almost felt ashamed and and that I'd be judged etc but what I really found towards the end of that kind of mental health journey with the panic attacks when I did open up to people so many people had experienced the same thing And obviously, that's a good and a bad thing. It's a bad thing because you don't want to feel or think that people that you care about have experienced those things. But on the other hand, it normalises it and it allows you to gain that extra support, someone that you can talk to that actually knows exactly how it is that you're feeling. So it's really just about taking those small steps forward that will gradually build up to that bigger picture of you feeling better. I think when you're in that moment, it's really hard to think about the future and feeling better. So you've just really got to focus on the present and now. I mean, I don't know how others feel, but 
the long-term stuff in my anxiety was really overwhelming me thinking about the next month or the next year etc that would be where the pressure would really start to build on and I'd start spiraling worrying about things etc and having those anxious feelings and panic attacks but if you really just focus on the present and utilize the support that's available to you then you know hopefully you'll you'll start to feel better and it might take a very long time you know you can't expect to to just talk to someone about it once and suddenly you stop feeling those feelings and everything's okay again you've really got to persevere with it but as my journey has shown that perseverance really can pay off our final topic of conversation sophie and it's one i try and have with all of my special guests if we have time it is a general natter and chat about mental health so firstly how would you say your mental health is at the moment mate yeah really good thank you i think my mental health's pretty great i do have anxious flare-ups sometimes particularly after nights out obviously everyone kind of experiences that like anxiety the next day when you're when you're hungover that's the only time that my mental health seems to dip I suppose but I've managed to develop a number of techniques to kind of deal with that and fortunately I have so many people around me now that I can tell I'm feeling anxious too and again just knowing that they're there to support me is really helpful and makes me feel a lot better. You've had mental health difficulties like you said from a very early age but what age did you become self-aware of your mental health and you realised the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? I think I must have been about 14 and at that point I'd realised that this had maybe been going on for a couple of years. So from about the age of 12, I think, is where it really started. But 14 is where I really addressed it and acknowledged it, I would say. So quite young, I suppose, for some people. Can you tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What impact did it have? And did it feel like a big burden or weight had been lifted, like your friends had said when they write for Sof Talks? Or did it feel like something quite easy and normal to do? If I remember correctly, I wrote my parents like a little letter. I think that was the first time I really communicated it with anyone because I was too embarrassed to say it out loud. I just felt really ashamed, unfortunately. You know, it broke their hearts to know that I was I was feeling that way. But fortunately, they were really supported. So, you know, I did the right thing by reaching out to them. What things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you. It could be a sound, a sensation, a social environment, book, film, play. Or have you not figured all of them out yet? I don't think I figured quite all of them out. But again, like <laughs> alcohol, the next morning I will just be very anxious. But I'm learning to kind of try and reduce <laughs> that and do things to to prevent that and also kind of like physical spaces they small physical spaces or like a lift (laughs) yeah well not not necessarily a lift more like a room it's it's a really weird thing it's I'm not claustrophobic but physical spaces can make me really anxious no lifts don't bother me at all funnily enough it's a very strange one I'm still trying to figure it out (laughs) what tools and methods conversely then do you find that improve your mental health or help you feel better which ones have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't so obviously the therapy is a massive thing and I'm a big believer that even if you think you don't have mental health issues, you should still go to therapy. And I remember my therapist saying at the end of our journey, you know, if you want to come back for just a bit of life coaching, that's absolutely fine. She was like, it's healthy to talk about issues going on in your life, even if it doesn't have a direct, obvious impact on your mental health. I know it's not accessible to all of us, unfortunately, in the world that we live in, but if you can, I would recommend accessing therapy. And 
as those of us who have had therapy will know, there's a lot of things you unpack in those sessions that you don't even remember or realise. So um, it's a very useful tool. I don't want to kind of go down the whole mindfulness route, as I know a lot of people don't agree with it or don't find it works for them, but it has worked for me. I try and journal out my feelings. And this really helps with the anxiety because when you write out your anxious thoughts, you look at them on paper and you realise how ridiculous they are and that they're not real and that they're not going to happen. So it really helps you to kind of ground yourself back into reality. Sleep. Sleep is so important. At the time that my mental health was really bad, unfortunately I was suffering, well I still am suffering with a bladder condition, but it had been undiagnosed. So I wasn't receiving the support I needed and it was keeping me awake at night. And I didn't realise until now looking back how absolutely exhausted I was. And that must have been having a huge impact on my mental health. So really trying to improve your sleep, I think is great. And just generally healing yourself from the inside out. I'm a big believer. I've done a lot of research around the link between your gut health and your mental health and, you know, just sort of fueling your body in a healthy way. When you're eating fast food and and stodgy heavy foods and you're drinking every weekend and you're not drinking enough water of course your body's not going to respond to that well and it is going to have an ultimate impact on your brain so it's really just about looking after yourself for me and implementing really tiny positive habits that are practical and that can form part of your everyday life that I have found have really made that kind of slow but long-term difference it might seem small at the time, but it really builds up to that, to that big for sure. impact. What is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. It was a book called The Mind Is Your Home, and unfortunately I've forgotten who the author is. But I believe it's quite a popular book. And again, I just recommend anyone to read that, regardless of whether you feel like it impacts your mental health. It really kind of taught me about my thinking patterns, etc., and really helped me to kind of be more in tune with my thoughts whether they were positive or not it just helps you to have that self-awareness yeah it's a really good book got one more question for you sophie so what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it obviously there's a lot of stigma around mental health as i'm sure most of us have experienced so i think people like you and potentially people like myself using our platforms to raise that kind of awareness automatically chips away at that stigma and starts to dilute it. Unfortunately, with the current state of our NHS, not everyone's got that access to the help that they need. So it's really about us doing our bit in society, looking out for your friends and your family members, letting them know that they can come and talk to you and that regardless of how they're feeling or what they're thinking, you're not going to judge them because... That is, I find, one of the biggest barriers for people not opening up. It's that that fear of being judged or not believed or being made out to, to be overreacting, etc. So if you let people know that you're there for them and you check in on them, then perhaps that will encourage them to open up to you. And you might be the first person that they've ever opened up to. And that could be a huge weight off their shoulders. Sophie Marsh, founder of Sof Talks. Thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Freddie. It's been great to chat. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Sophie for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for letting me check in with her. I will put some links to where you can follow Sophie on social media and find out more about Sophie Talks and all the articles she's published in the show notes. 
I'll sign us off by saying, as usual, if you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, tell your work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review on Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. That will really help us out with those precious algorithms. If you want to support us further, you can visit our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash UK, Or you can visit our GoFundMe. That link is in our link tree. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent.